We're going to study God's Word together as we do on Sunday mornings. We're in John's Gospel. We're in chapter 8. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to chapter 8, we'll begin reading at verse 12. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Bill will get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. We're going to cover verses 12 through 36 of John chapter 8. The fourth book of the New Testament, of course, the fourth gospel recorded. And we'll be in the eighth chapter. We went through verse 12 last week. We'll pick it up at verse 12 and travel through verse 36. Now, you recall that if you were with us in our study last week, we saw Jesus teaching at the temple there in Jerusalem. And he was doing it the day after the Feast of Tabernacle, which had ended. Everybody went home, and the next day he came early in the morning, and he would be, as he's teaching the people, interrupted by the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who had brought this woman to him who was caught in the very act of adultery. And they would press Jesus as they would uh, present her before Jesus and, and say, that Moses says that she's to be stoned. She was caught in the very act, but what do you say? And we saw how Jesus very wonderfully and very compassionately would handle that situation, and he would end up ministering to this woman as he would say to her, go and sin no more. And Jesus would then turn back to the crowd, and when we ended last week, he would say that, verse 12 again, that I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so, Father, we pray this morning that we know that your very nature, essence, is love and light. And I pray that we would see that more fully here this morning as we read this text that is before us. And, Lord, that you would touch our hearts and how we need your love and your light in our lives and radiating from us. So, Father, I do pray that you would just help us be attentive to the things that you want to show us this morning as you touch our hearts with your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So it was a very dark and very ugly situation that the Pharisees had brought to Jesus on that day. And we saw how he would uh, bring light into that situation. And remember that Jesus, again, is declaring this at the temple the day after the Feast of Tabernacles was over. Now, during the feast, many lamps would be lit there at the temple, reminding them how God would uh, lead them by a pillar of fire by night. The Feast of Tabernacles being that, uh, that remembrance, how the Lord had provided for them in their wilderness wandering, in their history, their fathers, that, that was provided bread and water, and the Shekinah glory of God that would lead them. And we know that the Shekinah glory of God, the very tangible presence of God, was present there in the tabernacle. And, and also as part of the celebration, historians believe that at this time of the celebration that there was a large candlestick that was placed there at the temple during the week-long celebration. And, and with those other candles being lit and this large candlestick, there on the first day of the feast, the candlestick at this time, as the feast is over, would be uh, not burning. It, it would be out. And could it be that Jesus, as he's at the temple, that is the temple proper, that perhaps he is by that large candlestick that eventually would be taken down? And he's saying, uh, as he stands in the forefront of that candlestick, that I am the light of the world. And again, when the children of Israel 
were in their wilderness wandering, you know how that tabernacle would be in the midst of the camp, the Shekinah glory of God there leading them and, and being a protection for them. God's light filled the tabernacle and would remain there for many years. The reality of God's light was in the tabernacle, but the people eventually would rebel against the Lord, and they would enter into what was called the days of the judges. The, the people chose to live in darkness, and, and so Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, was written across the tabernacle. We read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The children of Israel, not right with the Lord, they're doing battle with the Philistines. They take the Ark of the Covenant out to battle, and they end up being defeated. The Ark of the Covenant is, is captured, and Eli, the high priest, his two sons are killed in that battle. Well, one from Benjamin, and many scholars believe that perhaps it was Saul, the first king of, of Israel, he would come back from that battle after there was a great slaughter of the children of Israel. And he would give word to the high priest Eli that, hey, your two sons have been killed and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And he was so disturbed, an elderly man, that he fell over backwards and ended up breaking his neck and dying. Well, one of his you know, sons, uh, wife, his daughter-in-law, was close to, to giving birth. She would go into labor when she heard her husband was dead and had a son, and she called him Ichabod. That means the glory has departed. It would be later, though, that God's light would return to them when the first temple was built by Solomon. And when the temple was dedicated, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was magnificent. It was probably the greatest day in the history of Israel. And here that fire came from heaven and it, it consumed the, the burnt uh, offering that was there being presented. And the people all fell on their faces and, and they began to worship the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever is what they would say. And we see that as that happened, it wouldn't be long that once again they would rebel and the God's people would fall into idol worship. Ezekiel tells us how the glory of the Lord lifted from the temple and would descend over the Mount of Olives and ended up leaving. And that was about 600 years before this event of John chapter 8. So for many years, the glory, the visible, tangible presence of uh, the light of God was gone. And now they had to use artificial light and, and a candlestick, a large one, because Jesus said that they had made the house of God a house of merchandise. It will be six months from now that Jesus will say, you religious leaders, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. So it was a sad situation, and, and it was dark spiritually in the nation. They had lit their candles because the true light was gone. And sometimes you see churches or individuals can be a little bit like that. There's one well-known Bible teacher that I listen to and have a lot of respect for. I remember he said this, that if the Holy Spirit suddenly departed off the face of the earth, that many of the activities that go on in churches would continue, and it wouldn't even be noticed that the Spirit was gone. You see, just people, Christians, ministries, churches uh, can just plug away in their programs and all the activities and the traditions and in the rituals, but the glory has departed. And that was characteristic of the spiritual atmosphere that was taking place at this time here in Israel and in Jerusalem. It was characteristic of the hearts of the religious leaders. There was darkness in their hearts, as we're going to continue to read and see. It was really a dark time. 
but the true light of God has returned. As Jesus, coming from the Mount of Olives early in the morning, comes to the temple and he proclaims that he is the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Trusting Jesus not only brings us life, but it brings light to us and how we need that light. This woman here that they brought, as we saw last week, would go her way and sin no more as Jesus commanded her. She would no longer walk in that darkness. And as you and I believe in Him, as we trust in Him and surrender our hearts to Him, as we abide in Christ and and as we follow after Him, we don't walk in darkness. We don't fellowship with darkness. Paul would later on write in the book of Ephesians, for you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, was exposing those religious leaders in their darkness. And in the previous situation that the woman was caught in adultery, it certainly was dark. And Jesus brings light And he brought light to her and to the whole situation. And I'm so thankful that we have the light of Jesus shining in our hearts and is there in the circumstances of our lives. We don't have to walk in darkness like people of the world do. And I don't have to tell you that the world is dark, isn't it? It seems like day by day it's getting darker and darker out there. We know that the enemy, Satan, is one that loves the blind people, that is, spiritually. People are blinded by the enemy. And Jesus comes along and says that I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. In other words, we don't have to be blinded. We don't have to walk in that darkness. That's the good news for you and for me. But we have the light of life. So as he said this, of course, the Pharisees, they're going to be upset with Jesus. And we continue reading that, therefore, they said to him in verse 13, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. After many years, the light of God is back, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But yet the religious leaders remained in the dark. They were blind. Now, we saw in chapter 5, if you are with us and have read the chapter perhaps yourself, that Jesus has already addressed this issue. When Jesus was working early in his ministry in chapter 2, when he first came and cleansed the temple and drove out, you know, those who uh, sold the sacrifices and overturned the money changers' tables, and he rebuked the religious leaders. And then in John chapter 5, when he healed that man that had an infirmity for 38 years, and, and he did it on the Sabbath, the religious leaders were asking Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus would address them. Here he says, my witness is true. Jesus had explained in John chapter 5 that there was the witness of, first of all, John the Baptist out there in the wilderness who was proclaiming, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then there was the witness of his works. At this time, again, keep in mind that he's been ministering for three years. He's only about six months away from the cross. And he had been working all kinds of miracles, particularly up in the Galilee region. He'd been healing every kind of sickness and disease, freeing the demoniacs, even raising the dead. So there was the witness of his works, the works of Messiah. Then there was the witness of the Father at his baptism. 
the voice of the Father that was heard, that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then fourthly, the witness of the Word of God. As Jesus would say to those religious leaders, that you search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But they had rejected that witness, and they continue to say, you bear witness of yourself. So verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written, in your law, that the testimony of two men is true, and I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. You guys are accusing me of trying to draw attention to myself, uh, tooting my own horn, uh, but you've rejected the testimony of me. You need to know that what I am telling you is true. I know that where I came from, I came from heaven. I know that where I am going, that I'm going to go to heaven. Jesus has an eternal perspective. Jesus can testify of himself because he judges righteously. You guys, Jesus has already said to them, you don't judge with the righteous judgment. They only saw the humanity of Jesus. They didn't see the deity of Jesus. So their judgment about Jesus was wrong. Jesus says that I give tr a true witness of myself. Because of the unique union I have with the Father. I speak with divine authority. Your law says that there is to be two witnesses. I bear witness of myself, and so does the Father. So there you have it, two witnesses. In verse 19, then they said to him, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Now, I believe that the thinking of the Pharisees at this time is they say, show us your father. It's not, where's your father? Can you show us? Can we meet him? It isn't like Philip that we're going to see in a few chapters in chapter 14, that in that upper room that he'll say to Jesus, show us the father that it may suffice us. It isn't what they're saying. What they're saying is show us the father. In other words, this was an insult to Jesus. This was a dig that they're getting in because later in the chapter, they're going to say, well, we weren't born out of fornication. The implication was you were. These guys knew about the situation with Jesus. We know that he was born of a virgin. But at this time, the people, they just thought that Jesus, you know, uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus out of wedlock. So this was an insult. Where's your father? Huh? Where is he? And so they are getting in their digs. They're trying to insult him. And so Jesus responds by saying, if you would have known me, who I really am, then you would know the Father. But because you don't know me, you don't know the Father. Now, as we go through these chapters here, and as we see Jesus make these statements, he is saying it over and over again. I only do the work of my Father. The Father and I are one. And here he leaves no uh, middle ground. In other words, if you want to, to know God, you need to know me. You need to go through me. Uh, if you don't know me, you don't know the Father. In verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. So there at the temple, which was a very magnificent building, 
there was a series of large courtyards around the temple. And one of those courtyards was called the Court of the Women. And that was as far as the women could go in, in approaching the temple. Remember, when it says that Jesus was at the temple teaching, he wasn't inside the temple. He wasn't in the temple building. Jesus never entered into the temple because only the priests were allowed to go into the temple, those priests from the tribe of Levi. We know that Jesus, and Hebrews explains this to us, he's from the tribe of Judah. He's from a different priesthood, a more superior priesthood. But here, the court of the women is where the events of this chapter took place. And probably, most probable, where this woman caught in adultery was brought before Jesus, and Jesus declaring to be the light of the world. And in this area, in this courtyard, the treasury would be there. There'd be 13 big chests that were all uh, called trumpets, uh, big boxes in which people gave money. Temple tithing would be given and dropped in those boxes for maintaining the temple and the support for the priests. But let's continue reading in verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, another verse for you to underline here, then you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Remember this verse. This is the singular issue concerning salvation. Do you believe that Jesus is the I am? Now, through John's gospel, he gives a series of statements, I am. He's already given two, that I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. He will continue to do that as we go through this gospel on the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Greek word ego amin, the name of deity. And if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I came from heaven, that I am from God, I am the son of God, and I am dying for your sins, as he's going to talk about being lifted up here. If you do not believe in me, surrender your life to me. Repent and realize you're a sinner in need of the Savior. You will die in your sins. And the reason that I'm emphasizing that, you may say, we know that, Pastor. We believe that. But there is a subtle movement, I think, in the church that we are seeing more and more to where, you know, there's, there's a movement of those saying behind the pulpit that there's other means of salvation, that Jesus is a Savior. You see, I am very careful today to say that he is the Savior of the world. There is no other. He is the, the way, the truth, and the life, is what Jesus would say, not a way. But we are hearing more that those who say, well, Jesus is one of the ways to heaven. There's other means of salvation. Um, there's a, a new spirituality that's out there for us. And it used to be that you, you would be able to, to look at those cults that would come on the scene and you'd be able to identify them. They would talk about Jesus, for example, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, and they would use terms like, we believe he's the son of God. We know that he's the savior of the world. We know that he died for our sins. But when they really begin to talk about Jesus, they are not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. 
They believe that Jesus was a created being, that he's not equal with God, uh, that he's not truly divine. He's not really, you know, one of deity. Um, they deny those things. And you used to be able to really identify those cults very easily 30 years ago when I became a Christian. Yeah, uh, because they deny Jesus, because they deny the divinity of Jesus. They say Jesus is a created being, uh, Jehovah Witnesses. He's Michael the Archangel. The Mormons believe that Jesus is the firstborn spirit children between God the Father and God the Mother, that he's created. He's not eternal. And now we see that as Jesus would tell us that right before his coming, that there would be many false teachers and prophets that would come on the scene, and I believe that we're seeing that today. Those who are denying really who Jesus is. People will call themselves Christians, will deny that he is the I am. They'll say, well, he's a good spiritual leader, you know, he's a good prophet, a good teacher, um, and um, I believe in him, I believe in the sayings of Jesus, I believe that, you know, he's one of the ways to heaven. But do you believe in what Jesus states here very clearly? These guys, they were boasting that they were religious. They were boasting that they knew God. They were seen as being very spiritual, but they didn't want to believe in him. They just wanted to argue. Do you believe that I am he? And Jesus says that if you don't, that you will die in your sins. No one else died for us. No one else hung on a cross after living a perfect life. No one conquered sin and death by rising from the grave. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you will not have a relationship with the Father is what he says. If you don't believe that he claimed to be the I am, God in human flesh, then you will die in your sins. And that's the message of the truth that God gives to us through his word and in John's gospel and what Jesus is saying. So they would say to him in verse 25, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Jesus saying, I only speak that which the Father would have me to speak. Jesus has already told them that who he was, that he was with the Father, sent by the Father, that he does only the work of the Father. And they would shut their ears to that. But we have seen Jesus would reiterate how he spoke the things that the Father wanted him to speak. He did what the Father wanted him to do, the work of the Father. And you know what? He was in complete in perfect harmony with the Father. That's the way our lives are to be. In other words, my prayer for me, and I know that my prayer for all of us here, is that we would live lives, that we would speak what he would have us to speak, that we would do what he would have us to do, that we would go in the direction that he would have us to go, that we wouldn't live our lives apart from him, going and doing our own will. In verse 27, they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And as verse 30 says, he spoke these words, many believed in him. So Jesus talks about being lifted up here, 
And we know he's talking about going to the cross. He said to Nicodemus, remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, that Nicodemus, I'm going to go to the cross, so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus saying that when I be lifted up, you will know that I am he. I'll be lifted up on the cross. I'll rise from the grave. And when you go to the book of Acts, it is interesting that some of the Pharisees <clears throat> would end up believing. Not all of them, but some of the Pharisees did come to become believers. We see that very evident in the book of Acts. So I do the things that please the Father. I please the Father. It was his will that Jesus be lifted up. It was his will that he would take on that cup of suffering and death. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him would endure the cross. So the question is asked, what is the joy that was set before him? I think that number one, that as Jesus talked about in this chapter and throughout this gospel, the joy that was set before him is the joy of being with the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 goes on to say that Jesus would endure the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But I also believe that the joy that was set before him was you, was me. It would bring joy to our Father and to the Son, that we would be with him in heaven for those who believe on him. Just as we talked about on Wednesday night in the book of Esther, that as I was quoting from that little epistle, the book of Jude, right before you go into the book of Revelation, that knowing that he is able to keep us from falling and to present us, us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. That's one of my favorite verses in, in all of the scripture, that he will keep us from stumbling, from falling, and he, Jesus, will present us before his presence. What presence? His presence, the Father with exceeding joy. And the future for you and for me who are believers is that the Son, Jesus, is going to present us before the Father and the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over you because of their love for you. Never forget that. With exceeding joy will be the heart of the Father and the Son as you go to heaven. We know that in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the kingdoms, that Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid for joy over it. He goes and sells all that he had to go and buy the field. And as you look at that parable that Jesus is talking about, uh, the treasure hidden in a field, the field represents the world and, and the one who found it and for joy over it sells all that he had. Jesus, who gave his life, gave all for you and for me, and he went to the cross to die for us as he would go for the joy that was set before him so that he could buy the field, redeem the world to himself, and he did not redeem the world so that he can have another planet. He redeemed the world so that he can have the treasure. The treasure is you. And my prayer is, is that you would never, never forget that the Father and the Son have exceeding joy over you 
and that you are a treasure to the Lord because sometimes we can feel like that, Lord, I just must be junk. Or Lord, you're indifferent about me or you must be so disappointed in me. The Lord loves you so much for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and he is exceedingly glad that you're going to spend eternity with him. But thirdly, quickly, I think that the third thing that brought joy that was set before him was being obedient to the will of the Father and going to the cross of Calvary. He told Peter there in the garden, Peter, I will take on that cup that the Father has given me, that is the cup of suffering and death. And here he talks about being lifted up and doing the things that please the Father. And we can make application for our lives. Listen, this is important. It should bring you and I joy to be obedient to the Father, to do His will. It shouldn't be a burden to you and I. And even John later on in his life would write that this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not to bring a burden to you and to me but it is to make us free as Jesus is going to talk about here in just a few verses. For us to be able to live that life in light and in true joy and satisfaction and fulfillment as Jesus has said that I am the bread of life, that I am living water for you to drink of, and if you do drink of me and eat of me, you'll never hunger and thirst again. So the people are beginning to believe in him, some. Even though there was widespread unbelief, some would believe here. So Jesus addresses them, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So to be my disciples, you abide in me, believe in me, abide in my word. You see, you probably have heard this saying, that faith alone saves. We know that's what the Bible teaches that faith in Jesus Christ alone saves. But faith that saves is not alone. Living faith, true faith, trusting and believing in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that he's forgiven you and that you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And as we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts, it will produce a desire to want to live for him, continue to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus, Continue to abide in Him. To have that close fellowship with Him. Abide in His Word. Abide in His love. Have a desire to walk in holiness and obedience. You shall know the truth. Jesus would say that I am the way, the truth, and the life, as I've said earlier. And that truth will set you free. Free from what? Well, let's read on a few more verses. And they answered Him in verse 33. We are Abraham's descendants. For we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So the religious leaders are boasting here that they're Abraham's descendants. They're going to continue to do that throughout this chapter. And here they say, We've never been in bondage. Never been in bondage. That was a huge misstatement. And we know that as, if you've been with us traveling through the Old Testament, that they spent much, much of their history in bondage. 400 years in Egypt. They would, in the days of the judges, be in bondage. We know that for over 400 years during that time. 
And then shortly after that, after the days of, of David and after the days of Solomon, when the nation split, they would end up in bondage again. The house of Israel going off into bondage by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And then the house of Judah that was in bondage to Babylon in 605 B.C. And from that time of 605 B.C. up until the present here that Jesus is ministering, they were in bondage to somebody. At this time, it was to Rome. And the reason that they were in bondage is because they had forsaken the truth. They turned their backs on God and towards that which was false, false idols, false worship. And so God had told them repeatedly in his word to remember me and follow after me. Remember the covenant that I made with you on Mount Sinai, that I will bless you and deliver you if you follow after me. If you forsake me and pursue that which is false, you'll be in bondage. And God's word would come to pass. What do you mean you've never been in bondage? So as they're talking about that they were free, they weren't free. But Jesus answers them about the bondage and slavery of sin. If you commit sin, that is, continue living under, you know, the power of sin, in a disobedient life to the truth, you're going to be enslaved to it. In the book of Romans, Paul very wonderfully, very carefully makes the case that all of us have sinned, haven't we? We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. So the truth is spelled out for us very clearly in Romans that we need Jesus who went and died for you and for me. He is our Savior. We are forgiven of sin as we recognize what he did on Calvary's cross. And as we come and surrender our lives to him, we are free from the penalty of sin. And as we come to him, not only are we free from the penalty of sin, but as we abide in him, abide in Jesus, he abides in us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we are free from the power of sin in our lives. Romans chapter 6. And then Romans chapter 7, we're free from the law because the law cannot save you. It cannot, the law, free you from sin. It just declares you that you are one that breaks the law, that you are guilty. We cannot keep the law. And we are free to live a life after Jesus, a life of walking in a newness of life, a life in the Spirit. That's Romans chapter 8. That's when I am free. Romans chapter 8 declares, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that, it was weak through the flesh. God did by sin in his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You guys boast about being sons of Abraham, but you're not sons. You're slaves. You're slaves to your own sin and rebellion of me. Later on in a few verses, we'll see that Jesus says, if you were Abraham's sons, you would do the work of Abraham. What's the work of Abraham? You know what it is. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the works of Abraham was faith. And so again, Paul in Romans and Galatians as well makes the point and, and brings out the truth that Abraham is the father of faith and we who believe in Jesus Christ, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. It is faith in the Son that will make you free from sin. 
and sin that will keep you in bondage. Jesus died for us so that we have eternal life and that we can walk in the light. And as the Lord resides in our hearts, I'm dead to sin. I'm free from sin, free from the law of sin and death. I walk in the Spirit, abiding in Christ and abiding in His love. Sometimes people will say to us as Christians, oh, being a Christian is so restrictive. The Bible is so restrictive. I just want to be able to be free to do what I want to do. And what happens is they come at life backwards, I think. To live a life after the flesh, to live a life that involves living in sin and the worldly pleasures means that you're not free at all. It means that you're going to end up being a slave to it. And that's the very subtlety of the enemy. Oh, be free. Live as you want to live. Do what you want to do. Live your own life. Pursue the pleasures of the world. You're going to end up being in bondage to it. There may be pleasure in sin for a season, but the end of his way is destruction and bondage and misery. And I see people, and so do you, who have the mindset that I'm going to do what I want to do in life, and they're in all kinds of bondage and misery and despair and defeat. And as we to have discovered as Christians to be truly free is to have Jesus in our hearts and to live a life of abiding in Him, walking with Him, and loving Him. Just living in His grace and love, that's what frees us. It is the Son, Jesus Christ, that will truly make us free. So, Father, we thank You. We thank You for these verses that we've gone over and Oh, Lord, that Jesus came to give us truth, to set the record straight, that he is the one that gives us life, and he's the one that gives us light in our lives presently and in the circumstances of life. And Father, as Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am he, then you will die in your sins. I'm going to be lifted up. And in a few minutes, we're going to come into the communion table, continue to worship in celebrating this new covenant that we belong to and are part of, Jesus going to the cross for our sins as we hold the elements in our hands. But I just want to pray, if there is anyone that is here by chance that you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, that he is your salvation, there is no other. There's no other sacrifice for sin, only Jesus and as we have talked about this morning, the truth of God's word and the truth that will set you free is this, that all of us have sinned and the wages of sin is death, but Jesus came to bring us life. And it comes through faith in him alone. Surrendering your life, recognizing that you are a sinner in need of him, the savior of the world, Jesus, who died for you. He was put into a grave and he rose again. He conquered sin and death. And salvation comes through believing in Him. It doesn't come by trying to be spiritual or religious. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. He went to the cross so that you can be with Him in heaven and that you can live a life abundantly here 
doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfectly in your life, but it means that Jesus is with you, that he's working through you, and you have the love of Christ abiding in your heart. Will you surrender to him? Because this world is not your hope. Today is the day of salvation. So if that means anything to anyone here this morning, will you pray this prayer? That Jesus, I come to you as a sinner. And I come and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on Calvary's cross for me, for the joy that was set before you. And I just take your word for it, because your word is true. I believe that you're alive and that you're knocking on the door of my heart, and I ask that you would come in and be my personal Lord and Savior and sit on the throne of my life, of my heart. I surrender to you completely. I give you my life right now, Jesus. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And if anybody did pray that prayer, I want you to come and and one of the pastors or elders is going to be up front praying when the service concludes here for you to come and tell them of the decision that you made. And we have things that we want to give to you and bless you with. Father, as we now come to the communion table, I would ask that you would help us to continue the worship and just be at awe of your wonderful work that we have declared this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The ushers will hand out the communion elements. If you just hang on to them, we'll partake of them together.
that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We're so grateful, eternally grateful, that Jesus came and died for us to give us life, to free us from the penalty of sin, but also to bring light, to, to bring us true freedom so we don't have to live in the power of sin. Free to live for you, Lord, under the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that all of us here today, that we would be light to others and give the message of love and provision. Lord, that you would work on our behalf and that we too would keep that eternal perspective. Lord, bless your people. We thank you for this time that we've had together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen, amen. Would you please stand? If you need any prayer at all, Pastor John's up front to pray with you, or if anybody did make a decision for Christ, he wants to pray with you and just encourage you. But may the Lord bless you today. It's a beautiful day. And I know there's lots of football games on and stuff. But I want to encourage you. Spend